What do you know about that, man? <laughs> That was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you say we go ahead and get this podcast started? All right. I'm Chase Weiniger, host of the podcast, Lee McClellan, co-host. I hope everyone is doing as well as we are right now. Lee, why don't you set the scene? Because you're the writer, you're better with descriptions than me. So why don't you well, go so ahead? So I'm, I'm better at, uh, at being at Blarney. <laughs> <laughs> well, go ahead and tell them what we're looking at. We're looking at a side shoot of Elkhorn Creek right beside Pfeiffer Fitch Hatchery, which, uh, Fish Hatchery, rather which brings a lot of our, um, our fish home to a lot of people. You know, this, this hatchery provides a lot of uh, entertainment and sustenance to people all over the state. You're talking yeah. about catfish and fins lakes. You're talking about saw guy that go in all the, yep. you know, Taylorsville, Gast, Bolts, I mean, all the places that have saw guy, those are here. Sturgeon down there, Lake Cumberland. Mm -hmm. um, what other fish species have been? I know here? in the past they've done largemouth bass here, and I believe bluegill as well, and hybrid yeah. bluegill, I believe. So a lot of fish come through here. The ones that I've seen, you know, in person are the sturgeon and the saw guy, and then of course the catfish. We've come out here to cover Fins Lakes events and mm -hmm. actually watch them feed the catfish and collect them out of here, load them on the trucks, and take them to Fins Lakes and dump them. And uh, I mean, it's I, I would like to know the number of fish that come through here each year. It's it's considerable, I think, in the millions. The catfish, I think, have gotten into the creek at times before, too. Oh, that 97 flood, this hall flooded. Yeah. And there was a record uh, stocking that year. Record stocking. And, and the catfish in this area thrived since. You, this is one of the best parts of the creek to, to catch nice channel catfish. I came down two weeks ago and floated just downstream of this stretch of the creek, and I saw a lot of really nice catfish. So the area near the hatchery, good for smallmouth, also good for, for catfish. Years ago, I was waiting right upstream. I'm looking at it. We were coming in for the night. And it was about dark, and I was throwing a jitterbug and catching a few on top water. And uh, I caught. I was like, "My God, this is a big smallmouth!" Whoa! But then I noticed it had a big old chucklehead. It was a huge male channel cat. Really? <laughs> yes. That's he awesome. smoked it. I take that any day. Do me a favor, real quickly. We switch your mic to the other side. Yep. I'm just worried. So I interrupted you there. Oh, you're fine. While you were in the middle of setting the scene for everybody. But. This is a, an area of the creek that's braided, and the lower part of Elkhorn, you'll have quite a few areas that are braided like this. And this By braided, is a, you mean cutting around the it, Yeah, it kind of breaks apart, and uh, this part of the creek tends to change more year from year than any other part of the creek that I'm, that I'm familiar with. Um, but this is a public property right here. You can fish here. You can drive all the way back to where we drove, weekdays, 7 to 3. Outside of working hours, you have to park at the gate and walk in. Yeah. And it's that's what you have to hike. do on the on the weekend. It's a little bit of a hike, but here comes another fish and wildlife truck. Yeah. Might get some road noise, but that's all we've seen so far today are fish and wildlife vehicles, yeah, people no. who work here. At the During hatchery. the summer, this place on the weekend usually gets quite a bit. What's up, Josh? What's going on, Josh? I'm doing a podcast. Okay. <laughs> you want to be on it? No, you don't? <laughs> yeah, no, we're going to go wait a little bit. And... Hey, Josh, what, what fish species are you all producing here right now? Channel catfish. Channel catfish. Blue catfish. Blue catfish. Hybrid catfish. Hybrid catfish. So that's a female channel and a male blue, and those are the ones that go in Fins Lakes. Yes. Okay. Uh, Sauger. 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 Red ear. Red ear. All right. Bluegill. Blue All right. Lake sturgeon. Lake sturgeon. Alligator gar. Alligator gar. I yeah. never have caught an alligator gar, Josh. I need to know where to go. Yeah, no, way west Kentucky. Kentucky. Yep. I'd like to catch one of those. Did, they've done largemouths in the past here, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, we're actually doing largemouth 
Okay. Largemouth too. Yeah. That's a that's a good little combination of fish. So pretty much everything besides the hybrids and the stripers and the musky. Musky and walleye. Musky and walleye. Yeah, we do the saw guy and the saw group. Okay, here. that's cool. That, that's pretty cool. Musky walleye, um, the hybrids and the stripers are Monterey Clark, but everything else pretty much is done right here. Yeah. Awesome. All right. And there's a stocking schedule on the website so people can get on there and check it out. Yeah. That's all we're doing, Josh. Just a podcast. Appreciate the quick info. All right, man. Take it easy. All right, brother. That was the manager of the hatchery who mm -hmm. just stopped by. He didn't want to. He's obviously probably got things going on. Yes, he sounds like he's got a lot going on. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, it's nice to get the you know a quick rundown of the species they produce mm -hmm. here from him. He just pulled up in his truck and gave us a bit of quick info and drove on. This hatchery has a lot of history. It was a federal hatchery before we took possession of it. Yeah. So there, there's been fish produced out here for many decades. No, it's a, it's a great spot. I mean, the walk-in access for fishing really is good. It, it puts you in a good part of the creek. Yes, it does. You know, you can go through sections of this creek just like any other where you might go through half a mile that you, you just want to burn through it. Yeah. But th this puts you directly in one of those spots that's a stop and fish spot. Mm -hmm. and, and that I'm talking about, especially upstream or on the other side of the island. Yeah. I feel like two thirds or more of the water probably goes on the other side of this island. I agree. And probably just a third or so but on this side. But it's hard to float through that part. You really need, if you're floating, I always go to the outside. Do you? Yeah, I always go inside. Do you? The, you know, and you, you might say that because of how the, the bends are and how things flow. But things have changed. You've said that this part of the creek changes more than any other part. And I haven't been down here this year, so I want to look and see. Well, I'll put it this way. Last year, coming through this section, we went to the opposite side of the island, which is the opposite side from the fish hatchery, and it was just a nightmare. Yeah. We had people flipping left and right. I mean, it Well, that's kind of why I've avoided that. Just but This year, uh, the first time I floated through here, when we were coming up on that spot, I was, you know, shouting out, you know, Watch out for this spot on your right up here. You want to cut hard left, and there's a tree down up here. It's going to try to push you into it. And I was giving out all the, you know, be on the lookout for this and that. And then we got up there, and there was nothing. It was just easy peasy. So, so, so as of right now this year, it's in really good shape to float either direction. But if we have a big flood event, you never know what's going to happen. At the end of this, right before it comes back together, there's a very, very innocent-looking area where the creek takes you into the knob of a root of a tree. Yeah. And um, a friend of mine flipped there, my, my late friend, uh, Larry Kelly, he flipped there and I got my boat hung under that at a higher level <laughs> and lost my scent. Oh, really? <laughs> and later I was like, I hate people who pollute the creek. <laughs> and it was my scent <laughs> floating down the creek. I didn't realize until later, I was like, where's my scent? And I went, oh, I'm the polluter of Elkhorn Creek. That was just an honest mistake, folks. There's a difference in doing it on <laughs> I hate the I hate the people who do it on Oh, you know. the litterers drive me, I mean, I, you know, it, I, I hate them. It just it makes the whole state look bad. Yeah, this this spot's beautiful though. Mm -hmm. So Lee, we're gonna get out. We're gonna fish here in a little bit. I wanted to talk before we fish because yes. we've tried to do the whole um, podcast while fishing thing, and it's just a little bit of a mess because you know I'll get hung on a rock and I'll be talking over here, and mm -hmm. then you'll get a fish yeah, on. And we'll be talking about something for you know we'll be talking about our house or something or you know who knows our cars and everything because yeah. you know it's it's a couple hours and we. Haven't, you know. And you don't necessarily, like in order to talk and to have a conversation like this, you got to be pretty close together. And mm -hmm. I'm, no offense to you, I don't really want to stand three feet from you while we fish. Well, I know, we fish. I, that's, yeah, I totally agree with we, you. We get out there and cover a little bit more ground and we can separate a little bit. And we don't have to worry about dunking any of this expensive equipment either. Yeah, exactly. So we will get out here and fish in a minute and then we'll probably... Do a wrap up when we get Yeah, back. just, you know, give a quick report on what we saw. I will say that right now there's a chance for some fish on the beds. Um, 
you know, I always have a really hard time with creeks like this because of how the water temperature fluctuates. Mm-hmm. You know, you can look at a lake and you can kind of get an idea, or even a big river where the water temperature is pretty consistent. You can get an idea for what these fish should be doing. But in a creek like Elkhorn, this water temperature is changing 10 degrees a day. Probably, yeah. And with any rain or any cold snap, it might be 15 degrees different than it was at some point two days ago. No doubt. So it's hard for me to look at it and say, oh, the fish should be on bed right now. Fish should be pre-spawn because they might, you might have the water temperature in a day for them to be, you know, pre-spawn and then spawn and then be off the beds and then the next day. So, you know, you can't really judge by water temperature on what they're, what they're doing as well. So it's a little bit more of a have to get out there and, and yeah. check for yourself and see. And, and that's that's just terrible to have to go fish and find out. That's just torture. Sometimes I do like having good info beforehand, though. No doubt. But before we get out here and fish, Lee, I wanted to tell you about my muskie I caught the other day. I saw the picture of it. It was sweet. Yeah, yeah I mean, no doubt. It, it literally. 44-incher. Yeah, right around there. I didn't have a tape measure, so I don't want people to think it was 44 on the nose. But I just laid it down next to my rod. and marked where it was and then when i got back to the house but i didn't like straighten the fish out it was over 42 i know that for a fact but i don't know exactly how long it long it was but that fish is probably my favorite fish i've ever caught and it comes down to there's only two fish in my mind that really have a chance to be that but for me it's a muskie and i'll tell you why in a second but first i want to tell you about that catch because i've been going to green and fishing it for three years now for muskie and some geese and um I've never caught one, never hooked one, never had a follow, never had a f- anything like that. And every time we go, you know, I'm out there with my girlfriend, Kristen, and she's catching smallie after smallie, and I'm just back there throwing my musky rod around, not catching anything. And she'd always just thought I was wasting my time. But it finally all just paid off the other day, right? And it worked out perfect. Like, literally in my mind, it couldn't have been any better, how everything went. The crazy part is to me that when I think back on it, because I've replayed it in my mind over and over, mm-hmm. and when I think back on it, I don't think about the catch. It's like the from the hook set on doesn't matter as much to me as what happened before the hook set, and that's the part I always replay in my mind. But essentially, we were coming through a pretty good-sized hole, and I was fishing, and then you know how when you get to the tail end of a hole mm-hmm. and it starts to shallow up and mm-hmm. the water starts to move a little bit quicker before you go through a riffle? And... So Kristen was ahead of me because she's obviously going faster. So she was going through that riffle. And I sat down in my kayak, and I was just kind of floating through. And as I was floating through, I was looking at the bottom. Because the water was crystal clear, you could see three and a half or four feet down. So I was just floating through, getting ready to go through that riffle. And I was looking at the bottom, looking at rocks. And, uh, you know, I saw a couple red horse and a couple of suckers. And I was just floating back. And then all of a sudden, right there next to me, a big old muskie on the bottom. I mean, I saw it, and I yelled out at Kristen, big muskie. And as soon as I went over it, I was only about three and a half, four feet from it because it was just sitting on the bottom under the kayak. It saw me, and it tail flicked, and it took off. And so I, like I said, I was floating down the waters. It was starting to speed up to get to a riffle. But on my left, looking upstream, there was a slackwater section. So I paddled over into that slackwater section along the bank, and I paddled back up ahead of where I saw that muskie at. And I stood up. And I could see the bottom everywhere the sun was hitting. So I was looking for that muskie, and I, I didn't see it anywhere. And so I started thinking to myself, okay, well, it tail flicked. It took off. It obviously went upstream. So I went about 20 yards up past where I'd originally seen it at, and I still hadn't seen it in the sun. So I was thinking it has to be in the shade over there. It has to be sitting in the shadows where the trees were casting on the opposite bank. So I figured what I would do was just slow drift 
my way back down towards that riffle and make a cast across the channel into that shaded area and bring it across the channel. Okay, and that way I would get a cast every five or six feet and I would mm -hmm. basically grid cast that area where I thought that muskie was. And so I took that first cast and I sent it across and I landed it about two feet from the opposite bank in the shade. There was probably about 10 or 15 foot of shade on that bank. And I started my retrieve, you know, my rod tip down in the water, started my retrieve and I felt a bump while the bait was still in the shade. And then so from that moment, I felt the bump. I didn't know if it was a tree or, you know, what did I just hit? Because I'm using a, a big white spinner bait um, and you bump into trees and stuff. And without necessarily an exposed hook, you just bounce off of it. And I felt that bump and I started reeling. I thought that could have been a bite. That could have been a tree. And then when my bait came out of the shade and into the sun, I, you know, I could see my bait there. And about three inches behind it, big old muskie just following. And that was like, that. that's the moment that the the good memory starts mm -hmm. right there because from that moment on i mean it was just anticipation because i pretty much there was no situation no uh no scenario from the moment i saw that muskie following my bait that wasn't either going to be a big big high or a big big low yeah. you know it was either going to be boom or bust like heartbreak or i'm about to have an awesome moment as soon as i saw that muskie following and he was probably still 35 or 40 feet from my kayak so Did you drop drop the spinnerbait or no, Did you do anything different or just kept I on I just going? kept on retrieving at the same speed, and it just kept about four or five inches from the back of that spinnerbait all the way to the boat. And I'm standing up, and you got to remember this water is crystal clear. Yeah, I saw that from your picture. And uh, so he, when it got to the boat, you know, I came in and, at an angle, and I was going to do just, I called it a figure eight, but really I don't figure eight. I just do big circles, mm -hmm. a big circle as big as I can. And when it made that first little bit of a turn, the fish snapped at it. And it only got the skirt. But when a muskie opens its mouth, I mean, it opens up like a bucket. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so I got to sit there and watch that. And it's like all this happened in slow motion when I replay it in my mind. And then when I went to make my second turn, the fish ate the bait. And I didn't really feel the fish eat the bait, but I saw him eat it. And then a second later, I felt a little bit of pressure. And then I set the hook. And the hook set is probably the best part of it to me because the reason the hook set's the best part of it to me is because two years before that i had one other fish that was only the second fish i'd ever had hit on the figure eight but two years before that i was fishing cave run and i was fishing around these stumps and trees and that hydrilla and in my mind i was thinking if i hook a muskie i need to be able to control it you know i need to be able to make sure it doesn't wrap me around some trees or take me into those weeds so i had my drag set pretty pretty stout and then when I got a fish to fall and it came in and it hit on the figure eight, it was probably a 30, 32 inch muskie. I set the hook and my drag was so tight that I didn't have any room to work with. So I had a fully charged muskie on about eight inches of line at the boat and I didn't have the net ready or anything like that. So that muskie, you know, came out of the water, head shook one time through my bait and he was gone. So from that moment on, every time I'd gone musky fishing, I'd check my drag mm -hmm. and I'd checked it with that in mind. Like I need my drag set to be able to give a little and then I can tighten it up if I need to. But I'd always pulled my drag and I'd imagine what's this going to feel like when I set the hook on a musky. Mm -hmm. And when I set the hook on that musky the other day, it felt exactly like I had always pictured it in my mind. You know, like, I mean, that drag ripped and he probably got three or four feet of line and the hook just had the perfect amount of pressure and buried. And that's why from that moment on, from the moment I saw the fish come out of the shadows of the bank, and it was that anticipation, you know, that boom or bust, how's this going to go? 
knowing that it was either going to be a great moment or a horrible moment. It's from that moment to the hook set when I felt everything go right. Mm-hmm. Because when I set that hook on it, I mean, it was that was, that was gold. Feeling that hook set and the drag grip like it did and seeing the, you know, I could just feel the weight of the fish and knew that it was a good, solid hook set. So from though that moment to the hook set is what stands out to me. And I'll be honest with you, catching the fish, I mean, that was just bonus, you yeah, know. No doubt. Because, I mean, that's really when I replay in my mind, that was the coolest part. What pound line? Uh, 65 pound break. Yeah, but, you so know. a wire leader? Uh, I use a mono leader, 120 pound mono leader, which is just your standard muskie outfit. That's pretty much what everybody's going to throw. But, you know, the catch was really cool. The picture's beautiful. I mean, it was great. But for some reason, everything that stands out to me was not the catch itself. It was the, the follow and the hook set. And one reason for it's probably because literally, Lee, I've taken thousands of casts since the last time I caught a muskie. Mm-hmm. Down there on green. I, That's what they call the fish of a thousand casts. Ten thousand, what they call <laughs> But every single cast I've made, and this might sound ridiculous, and I don't even know if people understand, but every cast I've made, I've made with confidence. You know, because I don't just randomly cast. I'm casting a stump. I'm casting a log. I'm casting something. And every single time I've pictured in my mind a muskie, you know, emerging from under this log or a muskie coming up from here. And every single cast I've pretty much played in my mind what it's going to look like when this muskie comes in. And they never do. And then that day I made that cast. And it, it just looked exactly like I always imagined it. You know, mm-hmm. well, I mean, crystal clear water. It couldn't have been more beautiful. Yeah, that water looked fabulous. At 400 on green, I mean, it was beautiful. But that that catch goes up probably as my favorite catch of all time. And there's only a handful of catches that I really individually remember and think, wow, that was that was really cool, individual fish catch. But that, that one goes right up there for me. And uh, the only one it really competes with is uh, a big shark out of a kayak in the Atlantic. But... And part of the, both of those were kayak fish, and both of them were big fish, and, and they were cool. And the shark was bigger. But to me, the muskie deserves more respect than the shark. Yeah, no doubt. You know, like us inland people, we kind of think of sharks as these apex predators. And, mm-hmm. But truthfully, the muskie is an apex predator, and the shark's more of a scavenger. And the green is a native muskie stream. They were there. And yeah. it produced several state records prior to the construction of Cave Run Lake. Well, it's just, you know, the muskie is a true apex predator. And the shark, people think about it like that, but it's really a scavenger. I was soaking dead bait when I caught that shark, you know. Mm-hmm. But the scenery was still beautiful. It's still a beautiful day, but I just have to give the nod to the muskie. Oh, hell yeah. And I worked a lot harder for the muskie. I went down there and caught that shark day one, Yeah. you know. So I give it to the muskie. And you did on an artificial lure, not, you know, yeah. fresh dead or that something. Was that was croaker soaker. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that was really, really cool. I, I, like, I've always had this thought in my mind about keeping a muskie and eating it because I I have no problem with doing that whatsoever. I've wanted to, but I've kind of got a rule set in my mind where I'm not going to keep a healthy muskie. Mm-hmm. But if I catch one that's kind of borderline, I've, I would like to give it a try because I love those predator fish. Mm-hmm. You know, and I feel like that you would get a lot of bang for your buck out of one fish, a lot, of, a lot of meat there. But I don't really want to keep a really healthy muskie. No doubt. Because uh, there's almost no natural reproduction of that species. Pretty, I think 97 to 100% of the fish are Stocking. stocked from minory fish minory clark fish hatchery and that's just because of how our waterways are set up now they just aren't reproducing on their own so it kind of be a shame to take that fish out of there but you know muskie can overexert themselves on a fight the way i look at it you know a muskie is kind of almost like a person in a way you know how um people will have heart attacks during like uh, emergencies, mm-hmm. like if they're trying to get it, like if say a building catches on fire, some like if somebody might have a heart attack or 
somebody at work might have to run or do something strenuous one day and they uh they might have a heart attack well muskie's kind of the same way just like people don't like they might have to work harder than they've had to work in a long time mm-hmm. or they might get overexerted doing something they should be able to do i think a muskie because they're an apex predator fish they are the fastest freshwater fish in north america i just think they don't have to work that hard in their daily life yeah. well i mean once they're an adult they have no natural predators they're in food rich environments and they're the fastest fish in the world i really think they might while fighting exert themselves more than they have exerted themselves in daily life for you know maybe ever leading up to that point so i just think that they like people run a risk of overexertion because they aren't working their absolute hardest every single day and that's just a theory i have no idea but i do hear stories of muskie overexerting themselves and Mm -hmm. wearing themselves out or getting injured on a fight so that's one of the only fish species i really hear that about and to me it just has to be because they're physically built better than they need to be yeah no doubt for where they're living but I wanted to share that with you. It was a really, really cool experience. Yeah, I saw the picture. It was a very impressive. No, and out of a kayak. We got a guy over here doing some fishing right now. Oh, I think he's getting uh, he's getting the camera ready. Oh, well, Lee, what have you had going on recently? Well, there's a, a new property that we've acquired called Harris Dickerson WMA. It's along the Peabody Coal Lands out in uh, in Hopkins County, right on the Muhlenberg Hopkins County line. If you take a Kentucky 70 from Central City or 175 from Graham, and it, that goes into 70, um, once you cross Pond River, the parking area is right on your right. We barely have signage on it. There's two huge lakes. One's 214-acre Fishhook Lake. The other's 91-acre Banjo Lake. And there's a little four-acre lake that would be great for kayaks named Rhett Lake. Um, you do not have to have your Peabody permit to, uh, to fish this area or to hunt on this area. Um, and it's around 1,800 acres. The northern half is about 750 acres of prime oak hickory bottom land hardwood habitat that should be waterfowl heaven uh-huh. uh, as time goes on. Um, we don't know what's in the lakes yet. The fisheries crews haven't even been able to get in and shock them yet. That's how new it is. And this so, is in western Kentucky? Yes, this is in western Kentucky uh, near Central City. So if you're traveling down the WK Parkway, um, you, you'll go by Central City, and then the next exit or two is Graham, and you could take 175. I, th- I think that's a little easier. You don't have to go through town, and then it tees into 70, take a left, go about three, four miles, and it's on your right. So essentially, if you're in western Kentucky, you've got a new public piece of property yes. that has not been, I mean, just open. Yes, just it's not recently. been open a month, couple months. So, I mean, if you wanted, nobody's deer hunted on it nope. publicly. So, I mean, going into this fall, you've got a brand new piece place, of ground. Yeah, and a place to fish. Well, there were several people that came fish. Um, three lakes now we'll get a handle on what's there i'm sure there may be some stocking efforts down the road if the fisheries aren't up to expectation one thing pond river is right beside there and when pond river gets up it flows over into banjo and fishhook lake so whatever species are associated with pond river are going to be in those lakes what about uh pond river on the wma does it border it yes so there is maybe kayak or boat access yes yeah but you have two there's um Rhett and uh, Banjo have a nice boat ramp on them. I was thinking about for people hunting, wanting to access more yes, of the you could, And they're going to build a ramp um, right by Rhett Lake, right by the entrance to Pond River. Okay. So if you want to get there, to, to mainly for duck hunters. Yeah. But if you want to access that to turkey hunt, duck hunt, even deer hunt, you can. That's awesome. Boat. A new piece of big, a big chunk of property. Big chunk of property in an extremely rich area for that kind of thing. Um, if I'm telling you, if I was a deer hunter down there, or any kind of hunter, but especially a deer hunter, I would probably 
go start my scouting on that place early. Because, I mean, essentially this year it's never been public before. If you get out there and start doing your homework first, there's a good chance the use won't be super high this year because people are still going to be learning about it. Yes. You might have – you might be sitting on a – We have an excellent map under our – just go to fw.ky.gov, click on maps, and then public access, uh, search public uh, land search. Just click on that and scroll down to Harris Dickerson. It has an excellent map showing the lakes, the access points. And the wooded areas, the field areas, there's uh, it's reclaimed coal mine, uh, coal mine land, but they've done a lot of habitat work on it. And uh, we heard quail. I, I heard several quail the other day. I was nice. like, oh, wow, it's here to good to hear that. That is nice. Bordering down there in that Peabody area. Yes. Does it kind of have that uh, old coal mine look to it? It like does, but it's it's this is this was a different type of property because we could not gain access nor uh, th- these agreements were signed. Some of them in the late '80s um, that once mining activities ceased on adjacent lands, then this land would open to the public and become this WMA. Okay. So um, so it's had a long time to grow. Okay. It's really hard. I mean, some of those freshly mined lands, you could tell, wow, this is recently reclaimed. This you can't really tell. Well, the reason I ask you said you heard quail, and a lot of times those recently reclaimed mine lands are the best areas I've yes. ever seen for quail. Yeah, quail I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, it wasn't like it's, uh, it's you can tell, but... Um, it's had a lot of time to grow in. Well, that's cool. And there's a lot of fescue lespedeza mix on there. Um, saw an osprey nest on top of a telephone pole. Nice. Um, so it's got turkey, it's got deer, and I think waterfowl hunting out there is going to be tremendous. We're going to have to go down there and shoot a woods to water about that. W. We that try to be, highlight WMAs in our woods to water That would be a great segments. one to do. Especially since it's brand new, it's big, it's got several lakes. So it sounds like there's quite a few different opportunities to highlight there. It's got a river bordering it. so. That one sounds like it's well worthwhile to go out and it is. choose something about. It oh, is. That, that, that's cool. So you went down there and took photos? Yes, and and I've got the story. It's coming out in the next issue of Kentucky Field. And that, and okay. I just wrote it. Uh, like I just finished it like a day ago. Nice. So, it's so you're fresh. really up to speed. I was just there a, a week week ago Monday. Well, nice. I, yeah, a week ago Monday. It would go yesterday. So that's what, one of the things you've been working on along yes. with others. So some of the things we've been doing for the TV show recently, uh, fishing, Elkhorn, we mm-hmm. Did a lower float on yep. on Elkhorn here. That's cool. The that pa- was a good piece. The last two miles of this creek are fantastic are, and don't get much pressure. Yeah, they're fa- exactly. It's probably the least fished areas of this entire creek is that pa- the last two miles. I'd say the last two miles and the first three miles after the forks. Mm-hmm. It's from um, Church's Grove to 127. I think probably gets the most pressure mm-hmm. above that and below it. Not, not too much, but. This, the last two miles of this creek are really cool because it goes from being creaky and looking just like it does here mm-hmm. to being kind of that, you know, a little bit more slack Confluence. water. Yeah, it, where it's getting ready to flow into the Kentucky River and it, sometimes it now, gets backwater. people taking some nice musky in that stretch. Yeah, it looks muskyish. I mean, it looks, I mean, because you have this crystal clear people water. fishing bass tournaments have encountered musky, throwing spinnerbaits. It looks like a spot of musky should be every time I kayak or go down to the mouth of the Elkhorn because mm-hmm. you've got this nice crystal clear water then it's meeting the the dirty water of uh, of the kentucky river and you always hear that mud lines like that are a good spot to fish so you've got this mud line but you've also got structure there's trees that are down there's a bunch of driftwood and stuff that's up near the banks right there at the mouth and it just looks like a spot for a muskie to be hanging out knowing that you know the, the kentucky river might be one of the most underutilized muskie fisheries in oh, the entire state yeah by far there are monster muskies and the kentucky river and it flows through you know half the state and out in eastern kentucky a lot of people do fish 
um, in the Forks areas, mm -hmm. Middle Fork of Kentucky River and above Buckhorn Lake. South Fork, Kentucky is fabulous. And people fish those for muskie quite a bit, but they do not I was like, fish. it might be an osprey, but instead it's a buzzard. It's a buzzard, yeah. <laughs> Lee got excited and pointed at a bird to It's me. like, oh, look, buzzard, whoop. But I do think the people who musky fish the Kentucky River are kind of sitting on something, you know, a little bit secret there. And I hear about really, really big musky coming out of there. The South Fork, Kentucky is fabulous. I can see the point. Even the main part here? Yeah. I hear about really big musky being caught a lock four in downtown Frankfort. No, I do too. I hear about where uh, Silver Creek in Madison County, where Silver Creek dumps out. I mean, there's musky I've all over I've heard of that down. too. Yeah, and Mount Otter Creek too. When the fish kill happened two or three years ago, we were out there sampling and there were musky all up and down it too. But that lower elkhorn floats one thing we did for the tv show another thing we did recently was go to rough river lake and the hybrid fishing was on fire good i mean destroyed the hybrids and they were in open water which makes them a little bit harder to target mm -hmm. but you could find the shad um the shad balls in the middle of the lake and those hybrids were just sitting under them so throwing like a little rattle trap or something like that you'd get down there in that ball of shad and those hybrids would just eat them up i mean we're talking multiple doubles we had one guest on the show on the boat and, uh, would a swim bait work there too? A swim bait would work fine. I'm, a rattle trap might be easier to control your depth with. I'm mm -hmm. not sure because you can kind of do the countdown. Yeah. If you know your weight on your swim bait head, you could probably do the countdown too. Um, but that was fun. They used a live scope, which live scopes work really well for TV. Yeah. The panoptics, it's basically an extremely focused um, sonar beam. And you can see the fish moving and you mm -hmm. can see exactly where you can see your lure. Chad actually foul hooked one of the hybrids. He released it, but he foul hooked it because he could see the fish on the screen. He could see his bait on the screen. And we're talking a fish that's 30 yards out and eight foot deep, you know, you, or 30 feet out and eight foot deep. You, you would never know that fish was there without some type of electronics. He could see his lure and he could see the fish and he literally landed his, his lure on top of the fish <laughs> trying to get it to bite and foul hooked it. So that's how good the electronics are. Wow. You can put a two inch long rattle trap on top of a fish's head it, you know 30 40 feet so that's pretty interesting and the other thing that we did recently for the tv show is go out and band peregrine falcon chicks at lg and e cool. oh it was cool and it's amazing to me how big those chicks are because mm -hmm. right i mean they were just born like 20 something days ago and they still have all their white poofy feathers peregrine falcons may be the coolest bird we have oh they are cool fantastic and they're aggressive i didn't rub we were i was there was a two crews basically we had one crew that went up into the nest box location, which was on the side of a huge smokestack down at a power plant. And so they had to go up there. But in order for them to be able to get the chicks to ban them, they had to get the adult birds out of the nest. Mm -hmm. And to do that, because the adult birds weren't going to leave, they were going to sit there and, you know, pester the people who were trying to ban the chicks because mm -hmm. they're aggressive like that. I was part of a second crew that went up on the 17th floor or the 17th rooftop of a building adjacent to the smokestack and basically when we walked out on the roof they knew that those two adults were going to come try to attack us mm -hmm. so we were bait to get the adults out that's how aggressive they are wow and uh i mean they were the size of full-grown chickens and they they were they were almost the same size as the adult they honestly looked heavier than the adult because they had all those poofy feathers but seeing those birds and learning a little bit about those was really cool mm -hmm. peregrine actually means do you know what it means no i would have to google it to get it right but it essentially means roamer like something that roams or and well, they i do know that um jet believe it or not in the engineering of a jet engine the cones came from studying peregrine falcons because they have uh, things on their beak that deflect that cause turbulence so their hair doesn't get when they're diving at 200, you know, miles, 200 an miles an hour their head doesn't get popped all over the place and peregrine falcons helped 
engineers when dealing with jet engines Isn't that crazy with that? how evolution works yeah, no. i mean uh, how in the hell would you it's amazing i mean evolution worked itself out to make this bird be able to fly 200 miles an, an hour and smoke stuff when yep. they first talked to me like some people would be downtown <laughs> eating a pimento cheese sandwich and there'd be pigeons nearby poof a big puff of feathers some of them were like that was vicious and mean i, I would love to have seen it. i thought that'd be the coolest thing oh, that would be cool. to see a peregrine <laughs> yeah. smoke one of those god-awful pigeons because that's what they primarily eat not pigeons but birds mm -hmm. apparently they want to eat birds on the wing yeah or attack birds on the wing so they they aren't like a hawk you see diving at the ground trying to catch a rabbit or something they're 200 miles an hour would be awfully fast to make contact with the ground no <laughs> so, doubt. so you know that'd yeah. probably be a little rough and i've seen them on uh, harrington on Harrington? I've seen a couple twice. We don't have a, I mean, there's less than 20 nesting pairs in the entire state. And the thing is, so there's less than 20 nesting pairs in the entire state, but the LG&E, when I was talking to their folks, their nest box locations, because they have multiple um, at their power plants across the state, their nest boxes have produced 120 fledged birds. Really? Um, so 120 falcons have been produced, you know, just with the Department of Fish and Wildlife's partnership with LG&E those falcons have a lot of times gone elsewhere like for instance the the birds at the nest box that we were at um the female i think was 16 or 17 years old and she was banded and she came from somewhere up north some other state way up north but i think the male was hatched um you know here locally so those two had just met up and and it had formed a pair, but apparently that's what they do. They're roaming birds, and they literally seek each other out. They they kept saying, peregrines find other peregrines. So I guess those birds are willing to travel hundreds of miles and then find a suitable site and find a, you know, a mate. And they It was really cool. And I've got nest box video because they do have a webcam in mm -hmm. that nest box. I've seen the webcam. You can, you can get on it right now. If you just go to YouTube and type in LGE. Uh, falcon cam you can look at their falcon cams and see you can see the exact chicks i'm talking about with their leg bands on that we put on the other day in that nest box and you can i mean the adults will be there but it's really cool to see the behavior because the, the females are much bigger than the males are and that's how almost all bird species yeah. are and the male he would he would go out and he'd bring back something dead like just say a pigeon he'd bring back a pigeon that female would run over there and take it from him and she'd start ripping it apart and feeding it to the chicks and one of the chicks was a female, one of the chicks was a male. And that female chick was huge compared to the male chick. And I guess it always got first dibs on the food, too. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, but it, it was cool to see um, the peregrines, and it was cool to see LG&E's facility, too. Of course, that's I, I shot a segment on it, and LG&E's not necessarily going to be the highlight of the segment, but it was cool to see how that power plant works. Yeah, got a nice rundown of it. I mean, it's completely unrelated to Fish and Wildlife Lee, but basically their goal there is efficiency. And he was explaining to me how they generate the power. And it's just really cool how they use steam. You know, they use the coal to heat the water, to create the steam, to turn the turbines. But something that I always knew that much of, and I think a lot of people realize that, but a lot of people don't realize that then a byproduct of that is steam, right? And if you, when you condense steam back into water, it f creates the same amount of vacuum pressure that's created when you turn it from water to steam. That creates positive pressure. So they actually use that steam with cool water from the river to turn it back into water. And that vacuum pressure created by that process also turns the turbines. That's cool. I never had thought So they're getting it. it front and back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, positive pressure creating 
steam out of water and then negative pressure creating water out of steam they're doing the whole process down there and really trying to use the full cycle of the water to to do all i mean it was cool it was really cool to see the facility really cool to see the birds and that'll be coming up on the show before too long um not this weekend not next next weekend's memorial day weekend and we typically on those holiday weekends to get everybody outdoors yeah we typically run um three run segments simply because viewerships down a little bit down. Everybody's out on the lake enjoying themselves, which they should they be. They should be, so. no doubt. Yeah, so that was cool. And speaking of Memorial Day and lakes, uh, the only other thing that I that we did really recently for the TV show was go and pull a car out of Cedar Creek Lake. Mm-hmm. I said thinking of speaking of Memorial Day because I just think of people doing dumb stuff on, <laughs> on the water <laughs> when I think of Memorial Day and Labor Day weekends. And somebody obviously did something dumb on the water if we had to go pull a car out. No so. doubt. Boater's fatigue is a real thing, even, and don't combine that with alcohol. But yeah. after you've been on the water all day, the boat moving, it can make you tired. It can cause poor judgment. It can cause uh, a lapse of reaction time. So just be cognizant of that Yeah. It, when you're out on the water. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we're going to – what is this bug, Lee? I'm sorry. What is this guy? I just saw this thing crawling on my backpack. It looks like good smallmouth bait. Mm-hmm. I mean, it Some kind of like recent. A, looks like an earwig, but I know it's not. I don't know. I might flip some rocks, but essentially, you know, we'll tell each people, you know, alcohol and boating don't mix. Um, definitely don't put yourself in a position to and get And then if you have boaters fatigue on top of that, you've got a dangerous situation. Yeah, life jackets are important. Um, I know they're hot, but wear them. Yeah. It'll save you. And actually... You can't put them on when you're being thrown from a boat. You can't put your life jacket on. It's in storage. <laughs> Do you have any info on a new law that was just passed about PFDs being required while being towed by a watercraft? No, but I've heard a little inkling of it, but yeah. I'm not I'm not familiar enough with it to speak publicly. See, that's where I'm at, too. I'm right there. Like, I I don't have the details, so we'll have to get those from somebody else. Yeah. I think that's came across my radar for next year's boating guide. Okay, so maybe guide. it's not in effect yet, but that's something to keep your eye on. And, that, you know, that's a good plug, too, Lee. But it's just good to have it on anyway. A know? life jacket? Yeah, and if, if it's too hot, you can get the inflatable kind that, that you don't even know we're on. Yeah. You know? And then, then you don't have to worry about it. That's a law to have one on for each person on the boat. You have when you're to under have, power, you have to have it on. Yeah, well, the inflatables. Well, yeah. but any PFD when you're under power. Run through the PFD laws for me real quick. Well, you know, and uh, or if I, you're on a boat, let's just say it's Memorial Day weekend. A lot of people are getting the boat out for the first time. They need to be readily accessible, not wrapped in one thing. Some people buy like a brand new uh, PFD that's wrapped in the plastic it came in from from the store and stick it under their seat. Well, you're not legal. Yeah. Um, that's not readily accessible. You're going to tear the plastic off while you're being expelled from the boat at 40 miles an hour? No. So get take them out of the plastic, and they need to be like beside you on the floor, not in a storage compartment. That's not considered readily accessible. Readily accessible is something you can grab and put on quickly. And it, you need to have one for each person. One for each occupant of the vessel, and when you're under power, you need to have it on. And, and you need to also have a throw cushion of some kind. And the other thing to stay legal is there's a little bit of a difference in the inflatables versus Mm -hmm. the non-inflatable PFDs. Yes, and it's a little bit of semantic language. Check uh, the newest fishing and boating guide for it. But uh, um, some inflatables have a different uh, label that doesn't make them quite the same. Uh, It's a little bit confusing. They've just come on the market in the last couple of years. But um, check our fishing and boating guide. There's a picture and an explanation. Well, I think the the deal with inflatables is that you have to be wearing them yes, for them to Yes, or count. they don't count. 
So you can, you said have your life jackets readily available. That only counts if they're actual like foam life jackets. Like your traditional life. But if you have an inflatable laying there, it's readily available. That one actually has to has be. Has to be wearing. Yes. You have to be on your body. And the, but there's some, and again, that label thing come into it. Um, uh, Marcus Boeing, our boating ed instructor, and I worked on the language to make sure we covered everything. Yeah. But that's basically, if you've got an inflatable, wear it. Yeah. And so that's coming up Memorial Day weekend. Speaking of being legal and all that stuff, I actually got checked by a CO two days ago. I always enjoy that first time of the year when they ask me. Yeah. Oh, of course I have my fishing license. I do. I do. <laughs> you know? And then I always pump them for, anybody catch anything? <laughs> yeah. We were, we were, me and Kristen were fishing a creek and he, uh, it was a creek about the size of this one we're looking at here, Lee, and he was on the opposite bank and he asked if we had our fishing line. I, I just caught a drum and he, COs are sneaky. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, they, they try. Cause I, half the time that I've been checked by them, I haven't known they were there before I got checked. No doubt. And I don't know how long he was sitting there watching his fish for, but it, I caught a fish, and as I caught the fish, he he said, "What do you got there?" And I looked up, and oh, there he is! You know, it's kind of like one of those uh, memes you see or something mm -hmm. when somebody's surprised by the game warden. But you know, I said, "Oh, it's just a drum," and tossed it back, and he said, "Do you, do you all have your fishing license?" And we said, "Yeah." And uh, I was going to walk across the creek to show him. He said, "Oh, don't worry about it. Just I can look you up." So mm -hmm. he just ran our socials and made sure we had them but it was uh, i always enjoy seeing the co's out checking people for fishing i do lessons. too yeah i mean uh, you know it keeps people compliant there was no other people fishing that day but it's nice to well, you know these fish here that that josh is growing today the money is provided by a fishing license sales power this not just that the access points yeah. where we're at right here this access point and pretty much on this creek elkhorn every three miles there's a, there's a public access point mm -hmm. And you can thank, I mean, fishing and hunting fishing license dollars for, for that as well. And no some doubt. voluntary public access by private landowners, which helps also. But even those need signage and maintenance yes. and things like that. So, Well, Lee, I'm looking at my list here. I really want to go fishing. We, Me too. What do you say we go fish? And, and we'll come uh, back and give a report about what we did. Let's, uh, let's set up our game plan real quick. What are you going to throw? Um, I'm going to start off with that newer missile bait, a net bomb bait. But I will click quickly change to... Uh, to one of those new yammy fish I'm done. I love this time of year to throw um, like a fluke or a bait that's similar, uh, especially the ones that are denser and saltier, uh, weightless yeah. on a wide gap, you know, like a one size one wide gap finesse hook and uh, just let it spiral in the current. I've done great this time of year. So I will quickly, quickly switch if I don't get any love on the Ned rig. I'm going to try a swim bait first, and that's just because I had good luck on a swim bait a few days ago. They were being pretty aggressive, and I always like to go for the most aggressive approach I can mm -hmm. first. Throw a swim bait, cover more water. If I'm not getting bites, then I'll slow it down. You know, But I'm going to start off covering water and trying to catch aggressive fish, and then if that doesn't work, I'll you know, go to something a little bit more of a subtle presentation and try to talk them into biting. If they aren't wanting to bite, I'll try to talk them into it with something else. No doubt. But that's my game plan. Uh, water looks perfect. Flow is 290, you said. Mm -hmm. And the water temperature, I don't know what it is right now, but yesterday it apparently got up to 78. Well, that's good. During the daytime. Yeah, I mean, that's warm. Mm -hmm. But right now, if overnight, it was 58 degrees outside. This water might be 62. Yeah. Or, you know, that's, probably not that low. Creek. though. Yeah, it's just how it goes. But it's a beautiful day. Let's go officially, and then we'll come back and give a report. Hopefully, we don't say we got skunked. Yes. You're here just like saying. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like last time. All right, let's do it. All right, man. I'm going to go bust. All righty. Well, Lee, we just got off the creek. Sure didn't, did. Didn't fish for too long. I mean, what, maybe an hour? Yeah, about an hour and a half. I looked, and it was, yeah, an hour and a half. I just sent, uh, well, we had another guy here fishing with us, Tim. 
and he caught a pretty nice smallie, so I just sent him a picture of it. I took a few pictures for him, and I sent him the worst one of himself. <laughs> of course. <laughs> His eyes are closed. <laughs> he looks horrible. So I'm well, I'm happy for him, though, man. He's uh, glad to see him catch some. Oh, yeah. My, my, my streak of crappy fishing continues. I don't, I'm going to have to do a seance or rub chicken bones on all my rods and like, <laughs> burn something. I don't know. Burn an incense and chant or something. I don't know. Bad luck, man. Bad I've, I've had a rough year so far. Uh, the fish that I did see, the smallmouth, were uh, kind of out of the riffles in that shallow sandy area with a little bit of pea gravel. They were basically garden areas that should be nests. Yeah, I, th I think their nesting behavior was observed. Uh, I think that could be. I didn't see any nest, but the smallmouth, they would stay in like a 10 foot area. Yeah. And they just swim figure eights around and that 10 foot area. I saw fry of some kind behind that log up there. Uh, Did you see that? I saw some small fry. I couldn't tell what they were. They were so small, though. I, know. I mean, they were yeah, they half inch. Could have been anything. But the smallmouth, you know, kind of guarding those areas, they can be really hard to catch. It can be frustrating mm -hmm. because you can sit there and you can look at the fish. And, you and they'll put, ignore everything you, except maybe live bait or live crawdad. Well, that's what we did. To catch that big fish today, we flipped a rock. And I'd seen that that fish sitting there swimming around that area. I would put an artificial crawfish in front of it time and time again. So we flipped a rock and grabbed a crawfish, and I told Tim to throw it on his hook, and he just threw a Texas rig crawdad, basically, hooked through the tail, and there, and that fish couldn't resist. He came in and picked it up, started swimming with it. I saw Tim's line get tight, and he set the hook. So, But, I mean, some rock bass, a couple of smallmouth. Uh, we saw gar, saw drum, saw carp. Saw big carp. They've got a mud line up here. Yeah, it's place is loaded with drum and carp but ultimately if you're going to come out and fish right now i mean the creek changes throughout the day it might be completely different this afternoon oh and i think this evening it'll be really nice but if i was going to come out here and fish in the mornings for let's just say the next week um, i would probably say to concentrate on those areas that are kind of shallow out of the main current but close to the main current and close to some depth but it yeah. seems like those smallmouth are up there in those areas that's the spot i pounded is where i caught my biggest and it was this time of year maybe a little bit more toward june but uh right there so i was like i've got i have a lot of faith there this area right here i mean how much has it changed yeah uh, since tremendously last it's, it's ridiculous the, the, the one thing i the creek is is trying to change channels if you notice what we used to call catfish hole was just a slough, and the main flow went to, if you're looking downstream, to river right. But now it's gouging out river left and starting to abandon river right. Maybe in a couple of years, that may be just a little riffle, and all the main flow will be on the other side of the creek. I would say so. Remember how earlier I told you that left was now a good mm -hmm. way to go? Yeah. It's probably that. It's probably more water's just pushing through there and pushing debris out of the way and creating a smoother channel. Yep. But it, you can, it's amazing to me in two years how much this creek has changed. Since oh. we came out here and we did the catfish article for the magazine. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the We're island, losing that island. The island's pretty much gone. I mean, there's probably half of this island was... 80 yards long and mm -hmm. 10 yards wide and now it's broken into pieces there's probably half of it left yeah i agree compared so, to way when i first came out here in the late 80s it's way gone i do think this area of the creek probably changes quicker than the rest of the creek does yeah, i don't know why but it does it does but i would i mean just the huge changes we've seen here i would tell somebody if they were getting out for the first time on their kayak to probably pay attention mm -hmm. and uh, you know things have changed so don't just think you know how it's going to be um, you know, pay attention to what's up in front of you at least the first time out of the year to try to get a, a feel for how things are flowing now and if there's new deadfalls you need to watch out for because hopefully things are consistent from here through the rest of the summer. But, you know. You they know. will be. I plan to float next week. You should, man. 
You should. And I would like to come out here and figure out how to get on these drum and carp. Because Elkhorn would probably be a world-class drum and carp fisher. Oh, it is. I mean, I've seen some huge drum in here. I just have a really hard time catching them on anything artificial. If I pull over and I catch crawfish, I can catch them all day. But catching them on a fly might be a better presentation. But I would just love to get out here and target those big 5- to 15-pound fish all the time. And today was a lesson, too. And yesterday was spoiling 400. When we checked earlier this morning, it's 290. I bet it's falling. When water is falling precipitously, it makes the fishing, it can make it pretty tough. Yeah, falling water is always tough. Yeah, it's the worst. Especially on lakes. But in streams, too, I guess. It's just hard so to it, tell. Yeah, it is. Uh, I love um, stable or rising is the best. Falling is hard. Yeah. What do you say we call it a day, Lee? Well, it's uh, been a great day. Oh, I can't complain. No, it's beautiful. We got to get back and uh, put the show together. And I think you said you have a couple things to take care yes, of uh, I do. as well. So I appreciate you coming out. Good day, Lee. And we'll go out and we'll, we'll do it again. We'll catch some more.